Beethoven, who believed in equality for all, despite his irascible ways, wrote about his conviction that freedom and brotherhood must prevail when he eagerly accepted a commission to write music for Goethe's play Egmont. And the majestic overture opens the 2017-2018 season of the National Philharmonic. Hello, I'm Marilyn Cooley, welcoming you to this National Philharmonic introduction to the two opening concerts of the season, in which we'll revel in the glorious sound of the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by music director Maestro Peter Kajewski and world-renowned guest soloists in some of the most revered concertos in the classical music repertoire. Beethoven wrote comparatively little music for the stage, and other than his one opera, Fidelio, his stage works consist of overtures and sometimes incidental music for three plays, and his only ballet, The Creatures of Prometheus. For Goethe's Egmont, Beethoven wrote an overture and nine selections to be played throughout the performance, which premiered in the summer of 1810. Beethoven focused on political freedom often in his music, especially in his only opera Fidelio, and in his music for Egmont. Goethe's play is based on the story of Count Egmont of the Netherlands and his eventual imprisonment and execution by Spanish conquerors. In the overture, you can sense the foreboding presence of the oppressors in the opening chords. optimism, and even defiance begin to appear in the second section, as demonstrated by the cello. And although he fought for freedom and equality, Egmont did not survive the uprising against the Spanish rulers. And he spoke out against tyranny in the last moments before his execution. The overture ends triumphantly. Violinist Sarah Chang first played the Bruch Violin Concerto No. 1 at age 5 on a very small violin, a quarter size instrument to be exact. She played the Bruch Concerto as her audition for the Juilliard School. She got in. Her 2009 recording of the Bruch Concerto was voted by Gramophone Magazine as one of the top 250 classical recordings of all time. So she has lived with this concerto for quite a while. In these concerts, we can hear how she interprets the piece today. We're delighted to have Sarah with us for the season opener after her busy summer that included concerts at the Aspen Music Festival and Wolf Trap. Like Brahms' violin concerto, Brooks first in G minor was, in its final form, very much influenced by the Hungarian virtuoso violinist Josef Joachim, who assisted Brooks in the revision of the concerto.
Although it's in three movements, it's unusual because the first movement, rather than being a large sonata-form section, is a more fantasy-like ABA structure. In fact, the composer called it a prelude. The introduction starts with the orchestra and soloist alternating, and the soloist starts out with an almost cadenza-like theme. The tempo picks up for the first theme, with the soloist carrying the melody and the orchestra acting as accompanist. It's based on a two-note repeating motive established by the orchestra. The second theme switches into major, and here the orchestra and soloist share an expansive motive in which they move apart from each other without our being able to be quite certain about who has the melody. It's a gorgeous lyrical melody, with an especially poignant moment when the strings are providing a flowing accompaniment and the horns have a brief duet with the soloist. Back to minor, and the two-note motive creeps into the orchestra, where soon after a couple of really tension-inducing moments, the first theme returns, even more dramatically than before. The opening music returns, and after a brief cadenza, the music slows down, becomes much quieter, and then suddenly we realize we're in the second movement, a beautiful adagio, which joins the first movement seamlessly by means of one low note in the first violins, with the soloist introducing the melody. The music soars until, by the close of the movement, everyone is playing pianissimo, very softly, and it ends with the gentleness of a lullaby. 
The finale is based on a dance-like theme, starting with hints of the rhythm in the violins in a suspenseful lead-up to the brilliant solo entrance, which is the first time we hear the whole theme. The second theme, a slower, very dramatic lyrical line, is introduced by the orchestra. When the violin gets the second theme, it's a very soulful tune in the lower range. The two themes alternate with lots of fireworks, especially for the soloist, until, just a few bars from the end, the tempo speeds up to presto and they all come to a glorious finale, ending with two triumphant chords. And the soloist there, in the last note, plays a quadruple stop, that is, four notes at one time. Remember, Sarah Chang first played this piece when she was five years old, on a very small violin. It's really going to be fun to watch her play it as an adult with the National Philharmonic. Antonin Dvorak started writing a cello concerto when he was in his 20s, but it was never completed. He actually had doubts about the cello as a solo instrument, and he didn't believe it was suitable for a concerto. An American composer changed his mind. Dvorak was hired as the director of the National Conservatory of Music in New York, and one of the professors there was Victor Herbert. You may have heard of his first major success, an operetta titled Babes in Toyland. Herbert's performance of his own second cello concerto was a real epiphany for Dvorak. He not only came to see that the cello was a wonderful solo instrument, but he went on to write one of the pillars of the cello repertoire, his concerto in B minor. Zul Bailey will be the soloist for the first of our two concerts opening the 2017-2018 season. Zul is a great favorite at the National Philharmonic, and it's wonderful to welcome him back. He remembers the first time he heard the Dvorak concerto as a teenager. It was at the Kennedy Center with Mstislav Rostropovich as the soloist. It changed his life. He said, I knew that this expression and feeling through music was what makes us human. Zul is performing the concerto with the National Philharmonic just before he leaves for a tour of South Africa.
The cello concerto was written during Dvorak's American period. His famous New World Symphony was composed the year before, but it doesn't show obvious signs of being particularly influenced by Dvorak's musical surroundings at the time. We know that the composer had serious bouts of homesickness, and perhaps that's one reason there's a distinctive bohemian character to this piece. The first movement has two main themes. The first, in B minor, is a long, short, short, long phrase that starts in the winds. This theme is moved around the orchestra until the second theme, brighter and more lyrical, is introduced by a solo horn. This is all before the cello soloist has played anything at all. In fact, they don't start until 83 measures into the piece. The first tempo returns with a brief coda, which leads to the soloist finally appearing, stating the first theme, after being introduced by a chord that sounds almost like the beginning of the famous Going Home theme from the New World Symphony. Here's where the cello soloist finally begins to play. As the movement proceeds with dramatic development, the first theme eventually appears in major instead of the opening key of B minor, and the first movement ends with a confident resolution. The second movement opens with a gentle singing tune in the winds. The emotional focus of the second movement is a song by Dvorak from his Four Songs, Opus 82, which he wrote using a German poem, later translated into Czech, titled Lost mich allein, or Leave me alone. This song is significant because it was a favorite of his sister-in-law, Josefina. She had been Dvorak's first love, and as he was writing this movement, he received a letter saying that she was very ill. We can well suspect that the composer was reflecting on this love when he wrote this movement. There are thematic hints of the song throughout the movement, in which Dvorak expands on the simple tune and rhythm of the song, punctuated with ominous brass-heavy interruptions. Here's a quote from the song about a third of the way through the movement, with the tune in the winds and the cello soloist providing a quiet filigree. 
Dvorak seems to be reflecting on concern for his sister-in-law and also perhaps longing for his homeland. It's a beautiful contemplative moment for the soloist. The movement is based on the rondo form in which a main theme is alternated with several others. There's a significant deviation near the end, though, which we'll get into shortly. Hint, it's about his beloved sister-in-law, Josefina, again. The finale begins with a dramatic introduction, and finally the soloist gets the first presentation of the main theme. After significant fireworks from the soloist, one section starts to sound pretty sunny as it moves into major. Listen for this beautiful moment when the cello soloist and the concertmaster have a little duet. Dvorak wrote this just before his return home, and you can hear the joy. Then in the final statement of the main theme, the soloist is surely bringing it to a conclusion. When Dvorak does a complete about-face, remember in the second movement he referred to his beloved sister-in-law, Josefina, after learning she was gravely ill? After the concerto was finished, he learned of her death, and he expressed his sorrow by inserting an extended reference to Josefina's favorite song right before the conclusion of this final movement, first with the winds and solo violin. And when the solo cello sings the tune, he's almost weeping.
But perhaps Dvorak rejoiced at his final return to his homeland in the last moment of the concerto. From sadness, there is suddenly rejoicing as the full orchestra joins in the closing chords. The second concert of the season opening weekend features another very famous concerto, the A minor piano concerto by the Norwegian composer Edvard Grieg. Soloist Santiago Rodriguez is well known in the region. Among other significant accomplishments, he was on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Music for 30 years. In 2009, he moved to the University of Miami, where he's now the chairman and a professor of the keyboard performance department of the Frost School of Music. Probably the two most famous piano concertos in A minor are those by Schumann and Grieg. Each of them wrote only one piano concerto. Sometimes these two are recorded together, and sometimes they're confused with each other. Grieg, though, was a very nationalistic composer and studied Norwegian folk music quite extensively. And perhaps one way to remember which one is Grieg's is to think of it as opening with the sound of thunder rolling across the fjords and the famous dramatic descending chords by the piano soloist. It's soon followed by the first theme of this sonatiform movement, stated by everyone but the brass and the piano soloist, with emphasis on the woodwinds. It's an eight-bar theme with two contrasting sub-themes, a staccato five-note section, followed by a lyrical three-note tune. When the piano enters with this theme, it leads to a magnificent, flowing, virtuoso statement. It's easy to hear the influence of Norwegian folk dance music as this section becomes even more animated. The piano abruptly introduces a major key idea.
which leads seamlessly into the second theme, a lyrical song-like tune in the relative major of C, introduced by the cellos having a call and response with upper winds. This second theme, too, has a second section, in which the piano has a beautiful duet with the bassoon. There's a big orchestral surge that sounds like a new theme, but it's really a cover for a version of the opening theme, hidden in the lower strings, signaling the development section. Hints of the recapitulation start, and the piano repeats the opening chords, and the recapitulation begins in earnest when the first theme is presented by the soloist. The cadenza arrives with several pages of musical fireworks by the soloist, including a section in which the left hand seems to imitate the thunder of the opening, alternating with the first theme. Once the orchestra returns, there's a brief coda that leads to a magnificent conclusion built on the dramatic opening chords of the piano. The second movement is wistful, almost bittersweet, and again brings to the fore Grieg's great love of his homeland. This movement is a good example of a repeating theme in Grieg's music, his special love of the landscape and fjords surrounding his hometown of Bergen. It's easy to imagine the world-famous waterfalls of Norway being depicted in this second movement, especially when the piano enters. The main theme of the second movement sounds very much like a Norwegian folk song, but Grieg composed the tune himself. He was so very much influenced by the music of his homeland that it's frankly difficult to find any of his music that doesn't somehow remind us of Scandinavia.
After the filigree section from the piano, the opening theme returns with the full orchestra. You can imagine it's depicting a grand sunrise. To end the slow movement, a hint of waterfall returns as a solo horn and the piano close the movement with a placid ascending arpeggio by the soloist. With the last movement, we're solidly back in A minor, and the sense of folk dancing becomes even more clear when the soloist starts the first theme. The second theme is introduced by the flute. It's another Norwegian song. When it's handed over to the soloist, it becomes a ravishing outpouring of passion. The lively dance returns. And to close the concerto, the earlier slow section is back, transformed into a magnificent full orchestra exultation. It's a final flourish from the soloist as the concerto comes to a glorious conclusion.
Although Grieg wrote this concerto in Denmark, it's one of his few long-form works and a brilliant example of his nationalistic music. Thanks for joining me. I'm Marilyn Cooley with this introduction to the 2017-2018 season opening concerts by the National Philharmonic.